With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to a special series on the Herbalife FCPA Enforcement Action. Over the next five episodes, I am joined by five top compliance practitioners to take a look at some of the issues in this case. We begin with Mike Bolkoff, considering how he would have handled this case had he been approached by Herbalife. We then consider the lack of a monitor in Herbalife and some of the reasons by Jay Rosen. Matt Kelly considers the role of the board of directors and how they failed in this case. Jonathan Marks considers the role of gatekeepers in this case and decries a lack of skepticism at the board of directors. We conclude with Jonathan Armstrong taking a look at this case from the UK and UK Bribery Act angle and finds some Scottish cases which might inform a response. It's a podcast series I know you'll enjoy. Lots to unpack in the Herbalife case. These episodes are relatively short, 10 to 12 minutes each, so easily digestible. The special podcast series on the Herbalife FCPA Enforcement Action are a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Jonathan Armstrong, sitting across the pond, if you were presented with a similar fact scenario to the Herbalife case and were beginning to help a client understand the situation they were in, uh, what, how would you counsel them and where would you take it? Yeah, Tom. So I think in some respects, the, uh, it's really interesting that it's China because, of course, traditionally, China has been a very difficult place to do investigations. We can look at GSK, for example, and the uh, imprisonment of people there. But in some respects, it is easy to do some types of investigations, and particularly those that relate to things like gifts and hospitality. So, were I asked to look at this from the start, I think I'd initially want to get much more data. And in some respects, that's possible in China through the Fapiao system, the way in which uh, gifts and hospitality records can be matched against uh, central government sources to do that analysis, just to challenge the numbers. And of course, due diligence is possible into uh, uh, Chinese officials, particularly those involved in uh, TV stations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think as well as the red flags that you guys have talked about, there's also the issue around direct sales in China. You know, we know, for example, the challenges that Avon have had over the years, the fact that direct sales were banned in China 
and then allowed back under terms. So all of that, I think, from a UK point of view, would be ringing alarm bells with me. And of course, we're not concerned as much as you are in the US about that blurring between public and private officials. So the UK legislation would uh, come into play, even if everybody involved uh, who was receiving hospitality, for example, was private and had no connections to government. So I think from my perspective, obviously, you'd want to uh, challenge the receipts. You'd have hoped that they'd have been picked up at a much earlier stage, and you'd hope that the board would be more uh, involved as well. And um, I, I wondered if it was helpful just to talk about a couple of Scottish cases, partly because we don't talk about Scottish cases that much, but partly because I think both of them are perhaps relevant. So, so avid listeners will remember that under the Bribery Act, we have uh, the failure to prevent provisions in Section 7. So an organisation has to prove that it uh, put in place adequate measures to try and prevent bribery. And in some respects, this uh, uh, was introduced in the 2010 Act to try and make it easier to prosecute cases like this. And we have had a couple, uh, as I've said, in Scotland that are perhaps illustrative. We had the Brand uh, Rex case in 2015, which involved the very... Uh, uh, what's it, the very attractive world of, um, of cabling in Glenrothes in Scotland. And here the case involved uh, effectively a corruption of an incentive scheme where those close to the organization were rewarded under a scheme called brand breaks for pushing product. And they worked out a good way of pushing product was to split the prize with the buyer. That's obviously a bribe, even if you're giving the opportunity for a holiday, for example, and the uh, and Brand Rex, when they found out about it, went to government and got a civil settlement as a result. The other case is in freight and logistics, and I have personal knowledge of a number of bribery schemes in freight and logistics. It's a sector that has uh, traditionally been at the cutting edge of bad behavior, let's say. And I've often found it surprising how unattractive some of the hospitality on offer is. You know, for example, I uh, came across a case where the allegation involved a week in a caravan in the north of England. Uh, and part of you thinks, you know, when you're looking at hospitality bribery schemes, you immediately think of F, uh, you know, Formula One and trips to the Singapore Grand Prix, trips to the Monte Carlo Grand Prix. And it's somewhat sad to be involved in cases involving a, a caravan in a coastal resort on the uh, northeast coast of England. But, uh, but, but Braid um, was a case where I think the hospitality was more glamorous than that. But what's perhaps interesting, uh, as, as a message in the Herbalife case, is this was another case where the organization went to government. They settled for £2.2 .2 million for the corrupt hospitality scheme there. Again, it was a Section 7 prosecution. But the interesting bit of the case to me 
was the subsequent civil action. It was said that one member of the board knew of this bribery scheme. It was called something different. And uh, other uh, shareholders decided that they didn't want him on the board anymore. And he had substantial shareholding, shareholdings worth some 20 million sterling. And the other shareholders used a civil action consequent on the settlement of the bribery claim to force him to sell his shareholding for 2.4 million. So, the director who knew of the scheme was impacted directly in his pocket, not by a criminal action, which may or may not pursue in the Herbalife scheme, but by an action against fellow shareholders against him to punish him for his involvement. So, I think it's clear from my perspective that there are a number of really interesting lessons in this case. And I think it will be interesting to see, uh, you know, if it, uh, as would initially appear to be the case, some of the board knew directly about what was going on here and either didn't ask the right questions or weren't assiduous enough in following through the answers that they got whether there will be a personal detriment uh, to, to them along the lines of the of the Braid case up in Scotland. Well, Jonathan, uh, if I could maybe ask you to, uh, how would you approach a board of directors? Our, Matt Kelly may have some thoughts on the board's role here in the U.S., but it seems to me that boards in the United Kingdom, I don't want to say are more circumspect, but perhaps a step back and more hands-offish. Would that be a fair assessment? I'm not sure, to be honest. I think in quite a few of the cases that I've been involved with, I've, I've won at the moment, where the board have absolutely stepped up to the plate. It's a case where there are allegations made uh, against executives within the business. In the case I'm involved with, the senior non-executive director, um, who, who's technically, I guess, our client, is is working on this, you know, more or less full-time, despite being paid for substantially less than uh, full-time work. So, I think there has been a sea change in the UK. I think the Bribery Act was possibly part of that, because we saw, as I say, these failure to prevent provisions. We saw a lot of education, particularly to non-exec directors at the time. Uh, I have found, I think, boards more willing to get engaged and ask the right questions. And equally, I've seen a number of shareholders use their um, presence on boards to ask tough questions as well. We did an exercise, for example, when the Bribery Act came in for uh, a client of ours who had sometimes majority, sometimes minority stake in about 50 entities. And they used their position on boards in those 50 entities to ensure that the board had a specific discussion about bribery risk. And we, you know, we structured uh, that um, way of raising the topic and some helpful things that they could look for and and they use their presence in those companies to enforce and document uh, the right right processes and procedures. So my suspicion is that in the UK 
boards are getting more and more involved in compliance and specifically in bribery and specifically in um, data privacy issues because you know, both of those issues can have a substantial effect on revenue of the business. Is it? Is it? Is this change because people are all together feeling that they have to get on board with compliance because it's the right thing to do, or is it a factor of how much lack of compliance affects share price? I don't know the answer to that. The cynic would say it's the latter. It's just they're looking at impairment of the value of the business rather than necessarily doing the right thing. But I'm sure that there are there are many directors who are using their position to increase the role of compliance at board level for the right reasons, not just because they're looking at their own options or their own shares or the value of the corporation. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this special five-part podcast series on the Herbalife FCPA enforcement action. I'd like to thank my commentators for this presentation, Jonathan Armstrong, Jay Rosen, Matt Kelly, Mike Volkoff, and Jonathan Marks. This has been a special presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. The Compliance Podcast Network is the only podcast network in compliance, so please check us out at compliancepodcastnetwork.net. I'll link to it in the show notes. Finally, if there's something you'd like explored on a deep dive basis, please shoot me an email or better yet, um, tag the button on the Compliance Podcast Network on the pipe and leave a message for us. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.